When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Writing to Get Business podcast, where you'll get tips to expand your writing skills. Every week, you'll hear tips and strategies to support your writing. Pat Iyer is your show hostess, a ghostwriter, editor, and author who has written 48 books. Sit back, relax, and listen. Here's your hostess, Pat Iyer. This is Pat Iyer with Writing to Get Business. I have the pleasure of bringing to you Stephen Shapiro, who I have known many years. Stephen is a speaker and an author. We met in National Speakers Association years ago. I joined in 2008, and I suspect Stephen's been a member longer than I have. Is that true, Stephen? I first got involved in 2001 when I moved back to the United States and I first discovered them. So a little bit longer, not too much. All right. Back to the United States. Tell me about where you came from. So I was living in London uh, in the late 90s into uh, the early 2000s and uh, came back in 2001, but then went back to London for a little bit. It was just great to have a chance to, to experience different culture by living in a different country. Now, did you come back before 9-11 or after 9-11? I was in London during 9-11. I actually had friends who were flying uh, from their honeymoon in Italy to New York. They worked in the World Trade Center and they were flying through London, got stuck in London, and they stayed with me. So it was uh, actually a really nice time to connect with them and share stories about the people that they knew. And it was a very, very challenging but interesting time. I bet that was hugely emotional for them. Oh, it was. It was. I mean, they were glued to the TV and it was interesting to watch, you know, different coverage. I mean, like here you have the BBC, which is a different type of of news broadcast. And so it was just interesting to see the contrast between, you know, the American networks and the British networks and the European networks. Yes. Tough times. Very tough times. So you got involved in National Speakers Association after you moved back to the United States, probably more or less permanently. And I know that I've heard you speak about your personality cards, personality poker, is that the name of it? Correct. Yep, that's the name. You've always struck me as an innovative person who's looked at how to repurpose and monetize your knowledge. And that's one of the themes of our podcast is that it doesn't end with your book, doesn't end with the book royalties. It is a platform for which you can expand. Tell our listener or our viewer who's watching this on our YouTube channel, how did you go from your not being published at all, but to your first book? What was that journey like and what prompted you to write your first book? So I wrote my first book when I was actually living in London. I was working for Accenture at the time, which is a large management consulting firm. And at the time I was leading a 20,000 person innovation practice. Uh, So I was approached by a publisher to do a book. 
Uh, because when you're leading that many people, they're like, Ooh, lots of good sales coming our way. So for me, it was actually interesting because I didn't have an agent. I didn't have to do a proposal. Basically they offered me a book deal pretty much on the spot and I published the book. And interestingly, the, I had the first copies of the book in my hands on September 10th, 2001, uh, had one day to celebrate and Basically, the end of October is when I had my book launch party, and basically my book launch party was also my uh, leaving Accenture party, and that's when I left the world of consulting and decided to launch my speaking author thought leadership business. Did the publisher know you were planning to leave Accenture at the time that you got the deal, or maybe you weren't thinking about leaving at the time? I wasn't thinking about leaving, but I did ask for a leave of absence to go and promote the book because I thought, hey, this is a great chance and it would be beneficial to the company uh, because a lot of the examples in the book were their clients. And, you know, basically we just worked out an arrangement where I would leave and it worked out for everybody, I think, because I really wanted to promote the book and uh, they wanted me to, you know, do other work. So it worked out fine. I mean, it's, it's been a great relationship that I've had over the years with them. You know, when I think of Accenture, I think about all those airport corridors that I walked through that had huge Accenture signs, always with eye-catching graphics that got my attention. That's, I have to admit, about the sum total of what I know about the company is that they have invested a lot of money in marketing and advertising over the years. Well, and they needed to. When I uh, left the company. They had just rebranded to Accenture originally. When I joined the company, it was Arthur Anderson, and then they became Anderson Consulting. And yes. so they rebranded as Accenture, and they did these big marketing campaigns around the world. I mean, Tiger Woods was a big part of their early advertising campaigns because they mm -hmm. created a new name, a new brand, and they tried to be everywhere. And I thought their marketing strategies were absolutely brilliant. So just a fabulous company. Mm -hmm. What was the content of that book? Everything I've written about has been innovation. That's all I've done for the past 25 years. So that book was called 24-7 Innovation. Uh, unfortunately, a book that's 20 years old on innovation is a little on the outdated side. Uh, but some of the innovative? principles, yeah, you got to keep on changing things. But it was, uh, you know, I, there's still concepts there. The fundamental principles definitely still apply. Uh, some of the case studies may be a little older at this point, but that's everything I write is about innovation, problem solving, creativity, collaboration. Uh, I'm, I'm basically a one trick pony when it comes to that. But as you just reeled off all of those words, it's clear that there are many dimensions of innovation. You can have the most innovative person in the company, but if that individual can't communicate with the rest of the team, then things are going to fall flat or it's going to be even more difficult to make changes using that individual's brilliance. Absolutely. I mean, that's the nice thing with innovation is it, it is a broad topic with a lot of different places you can go. Uh, I've applied innovation. One of my books is on how do you apply the concepts of innovation to your own personal life? Uh, another one is how do you apply the concepts of innovation to collaboration and teamwork? You mentioned personality poker. Uh, another one is all around how do you create a culture of innovation? Another one specifically about problem solving. So each of the books that I wrote were around a very specific subset or a very, very specific slice of the world of innovation. And were these books independently published or did you go through a traditional publisher for each of them? So I've had six in total. Uh, first one was McGraw-Hill. Second one was Wiley. Uh, the third one I self-published, truly self-published. 
Uh, didn't even have an ISBN number on it. It was only sold in bulk to my clients who hired me to do speeches. And that was a, a great book. I've, I've got a lot of leverage out of that one. Uh, then I had two books with Penguin for their portfolio imprint. And then my last one was hybrid published. So I've done self, hybrid, traditional. Uh, I've, I've run the gamut. What would you recommend to somebody who is faced with those choices and is confused as to what direction to head to? They all have pluses and minuses. It really depends on you know why you're writing a book. And I think that's the, the question which a lot of people don't take enough time to think about. Uh, they spend a lot of time thinking about the book, but not why are they writing the book? What are they hoping to do with the book? What's the end game for the book? And so I think that really is going to determine the right strategy. I mean, I loved, I loved being traditionally published. To say that I have two books with Penguin is, to me, great. Uh, for my most recent book, I knew I couldn't go traditional publishing because I needed to own the intellectual property because I've taken the content of the book and I've created uh, videos where I basically read the book in front of a green screen and created hours and hours of content around that, created tools where all the content from the book is repurposed into tools. And most traditional publishers want to own audio, video, digital rights of any form of the book. And so for me, that wasn't an option. And I just didn't want to go down the self-publishing path because I wanted a book that was really going to be a work of art, something that when people held it in their hands, they would say, this is a beautiful, spectacular book, and it represents my brand. That's a great point, because I'm sure you and I have both picked up books that have been independently published and you look at it and say, I know this was independently published. This was not edited. This was laid out in a very um, unusual way, maybe double-spaced, for example, or one book I can think of as like a size 16 font, just in order to stretch the book to, to meet the minimum number of pages. You've clearly seen those books as I have. What did the what was the arrangement with a hybrid publisher? Did you have to invest to get that book published or was there a, a split on sales? There, there's definitely an investment. I mean, I think all hybrid publishers, there's going to be an investment. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a slight split on sales, but it's, it's relatively favorable. I mean, compared to like a traditional publisher where I might get from a retail channel, you know, a, a very, very small percentage, maybe 10% or 15% uh, of the price, um, it's basically been flipped on its head. Uh, so the publisher takes a much smaller percentage, obviously Amazon and whatever distribution channels take their percentage. Uh, so there, there's a little bit of sharing, but also the nice thing is if I sell to my clients directly, I keep all of the profits, uh, but I did have to pay for all the books to be printed. So when I went with Penguin, I didn't have to pay for books to be printed, but I also got a very small amount of money on the back end of it compared to, you know, the percentage of the, what the book costs. Mm -hmm. I know with the traditional publishers that I have gone through that I've gotten 10 to 12% to royalties, if that. Now they were big textbooks that sold $100, that were $100 a piece. So it turned out to be that I would get a nice size royalty check twice a year. But I quite honestly make more money every month with a check that Amazon sells me, sends me, or puts into my bank account now, than I ever did from a traditional publisher. 
Yeah, and again, it comes down to what's what's the purpose. I mean, the purpose of my books rarely is for me to make money off the books. I mean, I will make, you know, much more from the follow-on services and products and other things that I'm going to sell on the back of a book. So I've never really looked at the financial implications of traditional versus hybrid versus self. I mean, obviously, hybrid is the one which is the most money that you have to outlay. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the one big consideration. Uh, but you know, it, it's really, there's a lot more to be made up in other ways. And so, you know, even with my self-published book, like I said, I only sold it in bulk. What I loved about it was every time I sold it though, it was a print on demand book. It was customized for the client. So if they had 500 people, 200 people in the audience, it didn't really matter how many people in the audience, because this particular print on demand publisher that I was using had no uh, setup costs and the minimum print run was like 50 copies. So I was able to put the logo from the client right on the cover, put mm-hmm. a message from the CEO on the inside. Uh, in some cases, we rebranded the entire outside of the book to match the colors of the company. And it's a great, great uh, product to, to, to provide to people when you can do that level of customization. So that was great for the self-publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, that was more of a gift for things. The book that I have right now is really more of a uh, I guess a marketing tool in some respects, because people who read it really get what I'm talking about and see the value in, in the content. And I notice also that every time I think of you, I think of you in purple, Stephen, which you are true to your brand colors in this podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, let me tell you, he's wearing an elegant purple button down shirt. And he's got his book with a purple cover in the background. Uh, is purple your brand color now and has been, or is this a, a recent change? Because it's embedded in my brain. Stephen equals purple. I, I've got that. <laughs> so purple was always my color. And I think I really got into purple about 20 years ago. I remember I was doing a speech in Singapore and I, wore purple a lot and I was doing a speech in Singapore and, and somebody said, did you know that purple is the color of innovation here? It's like, no, I didn't know that. So, so I just started wearing purple more and more and more. And so it became my color for a while until maybe about uh, six or seven years ago when a branding agency said, ah, purple, it's not, doesn't represent you well, you should change your colors. So I changed my colors and it just became a little vanilla. It doesn't, didn't really have any pop to it. So when it came time to do this book, we decided we're going back to purple. And that's because a buddy of mine who designed the cover uh, came out with a version that was purple. And I said, sold, we're doing this. <laughs> There's great value in being consistent. And when you go into your closet, you never have to think about what color shirt you're going to pull out. If you're going to be on camera, you know the answer to that. It is true. It makes life a little easier. Although I do have so many different shades of purple. I'll wear a different purple for different occasions. Or if I'm wearing a sport coat, I'm going to wear a different color purple. But I I like the consistency. It's a fun color. It's recognizable. A lot of my branding and other materials are are in the purple realm. And so uh, it's, it's good and I like it. And what from a book perspective, you know, it was interesting because when we were considering a purple book, the publisher was originally like, well, I don't know. And so I went to the bookstore and I looked and, and there were like some in the business book section, there were literally two books that were purple. One was uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which sort of had a 
various purple shades in it. And the other one was the Harvard Business Review's uh, book on uh, innovation articles. And so I thought, okay, well, there's not a lot of purple. One happens to be Harvard Business Review with innovation. So let's go with the purple because it's going to stand out. And like you said, people, when they see the book, it's, it's because there's the invisible man on the cover. And there's a lot of subtle things that we've done. The glasses actually, uh, if you get the light right, will sort of glow. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we did to make the cover really pop, especially in a bookstore or if you just see it on somebody's shelf. And that's been fun is just to play around with it. I know when I was working with Greg Williams as his ghostwriter, and purple is his brand name, brand color also, he talked to the publisher about having a purple cover, and they assured him it would be purple, but it came out like a dark navy color. And he said, you know, that's not purple. And they said, oh, but when it's printed, it'll be purple. Well, it came out as dark navy, and he was not happy. So I'm glad that you got your purple cover. Well, and, and we had the, the test runs because we wanted to make sure it was the right, you know, shade of purple because just because something looks one way on a screen doesn't mean it's going to look the same way when it's printed. And so we really, and even with the, the, the proofs of the book, the arcs, the review copies, the color of the purple on the paperback review copies is actually different than the book. And so I wanted to make sure when the finished hardcover book came out, it had this deep, rich, royal purple, and it was exactly what I wanted. So the publisher did a great job with that. Perfect. You mentioned personality poker, and I wanted to explore with you some of the ways that you have monetized the book. We've talked about the fact that if you expect to get rich off the royalties, think about another source of income. But clearly, you have used your books to position your knowledge in front of your customers. So tell us a little bit more about the strategy that you use. So I'm always thinking about what can I do to create the greatest value for my clients. And there's a framework that I developed a long time ago that I've always had in the back of my head anytime I'm creating something. And it basically, when it comes to products and services, especially in the realm that we're talking about, there are three categories. There's the tell me, there's the enable me, and there's the do it for me. And so most of the time when we think about products, we talk about tell me, which tell me what to do, read a book, go to a workshop, watch a speech, whatever it is, we're telling somebody what to do. But then the audience, the person who read the book or saw the speech has to figure out how to apply that and actually make it a reality. So that's sort of, to me, the, the lowest level of value that you can provide someone because the amount of effort it is on the person who is consuming the content, it's the greatest amount of effort. On the flip side, you have the do it for me, which is more of a consulting model, which is great because that's easiest for the consumer of the content, but it's most expensive and it's not scalable for the thought leader. So it's that middle category that enable me that has always intrigued me, which says, how can we create something which basically packages up our intellectual property in a way that is as easy as possible for the reader to apply. It's easy as possible for the, the customer to apply these concepts. And so everything I develop, whether it's personality poker, I could talk about personality tests or I could create a deck of cards that actually when you play this very simple game reveals your hand by just playing the game. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, my Invisible Solutions book. 
yes, I can tell people how to reframe problems, but we've developed a number of tools that actually help you do the reframing. There's a chat bot where it asks you a bunch of questions. And as part of asking you questions, we'll help you do the reframe. So I'm always trying to think of what is the way that I can create the greatest value for my clients in a way that takes as little of my time as possible, but also respects their time. And that's how I sort of think about product. I think I remember hearing you talk about this at one of the NSA meetings, and it was probably the one where we were playing personality poker. And I remember walking into a room crowded with people and people swapping cards and holding up cards and then having you talk about using products related to being a speaker. That, that makes sense. I mean, I have, I have talked about and played personality poker at NSA events before, so that's mm -hmm. quite likely where I talked about it. Who is the person or entity who seeks you out? What types of clients are most attracted to the message that you have to offer? Most of my work is around uh, really helping large companies, you know, rethink the way that they innovate, rethink their business, rethink their business models. So my clients are typically, you know, Fortune 100 companies. The people who hire me are either like a chief innovation officer or the head of a, a business unit, or if it's a smaller company, maybe the CEO. But that's, that's more traditionally who I've targeted. Now, as I've developed more tools though, and that's the nice thing with creating these enablement tools, uh, is that I've been able to target companies that maybe aren't as large, maybe they don't have as much money, but they still have the same types of problems. And so my goal is to figure out how can I scale my business, support people regardless of their size, and give them the tools that will help them solve whatever problems they have. And so although traditionally it's always been large companies, I really am always trying to figure out how can I serve a broader market. I did a podcast a few weeks ago with April Callis Berkmeyer, who focuses in on change management. And I'm thinking about the two of you kind of shoulder to shoulder, because if the company recognizes the need to change, then they may think in terms of innovation, where they come up with an innovation, and then they encounter the resistance to change that can torpedo that opportunity to improve systems or efficiencies. Do you have conversations with your clients around, okay, we've come up with an innovation. Now, how do we bring it about? A lot of my work is around that too. I mean, it, to me, you can't come up with, my work is not around coming up with ideas because that to me is a small part of the innovation process. It really is how do we create innovation as a cultural norm? How do we propagate it through everyone and have everyone embrace it and want to participate. So I'm, I'm looking beyond just creativity, which is maybe the spark and the inspiration. I'm looking at organization structures, measurements, leadership styles, uh, collaboration methods. To me, all of those uh, get need to be put together because you're right. If you deal with just one part of the problem, well, that doesn't necessarily solve anything because you have all the other aspects that need to be dealt with. Yes, and the humans who have their stakes in maintaining the correct way, the current way, not wanting to alter what they're doing. When I was in graduate school getting my master's in nursing, I came across the term change agent, and I started getting fascinated with 
what do you do when you go into a new organization? In this case, I, when I finished my master's degree, I was hired to be in charge of the education for a large urban hospital. And I thought through, when I walk in that door, how do I recognize what needs to be changed? Because I was convinced I would find something that needed to be changed. After all, you know, I came out of my Ivy League program, so therefore I was going to solve all their problems. And then the change agent philosophy says, hmm, I don't think you should just go in and say, Stephen, you're going to do it this way today because I told you it's a better way to do it. So I went through a process of working on every unit in the hospital to get to know the employees and establish my own credibility so that I could draw on that capital in the seven years that I ran the department and people would listen to me because I had worked side by side with them. So automatically I established that I knew their jobs and I established those relationships with them. The whole aspect of innovation has so many different components. What do you see as your next book? Have you thought in terms of where you want to head with your content from this point forward? Well, given that I just came out with a book about a year ago, I'm not putting too much thought into the next book. But one of my beliefs is that we as authors and speakers and thought leaders is we're told to pivot. We're told to change direction. What's next? And and one of the metaphors that I like to use is golf. You know, if you're a bad golfer, you'll do something which is called a divot. And a divot is where you go too deep. You basically miss the ball and a chunk of grass goes flying. Well, for my business, I've really for the past 10 years been divoting, not pivoting. I'm not trying to go broader or to the next thing. I'm actually trying to do what's deeper, what's more mm-hmm. valuable. So this whole concept, Invisible Solutions, which is an entire book, an entire body of work built around lenses that I've developed, started 10 years ago with my previous book, Best Practices Are Stupid. And there was just one chapter in there where I talked about the power of reframing problem statements, asking better questions as a means of finding better solutions. And people said, it's a fascinating concept. I like the idea. How do we do it? And so I spent the past 10 years developing tools, methods, processes, and gathering stories around how do you reframe a problem, not just the concept, but actually the practical application of it. And so what I do next is probably not another book, but it's going to be other products that go deeper and deeper and deeper into the process of reframing and creating a culture of innovation. And that sounds like essential work. The culture has to support and nourish and applaud and encourage innovation. Otherwise, it stays dead in the hard drives of those computers of the innovators who can't reach the people in the way that they understand. And maybe that's in the reframing and the framing of those concepts to to help individuals make their contributions, recognize the value, contribute and actively build the change that embodies the innovation. Absolutely. Every, to me, everything is in the reframe. So even though a lot of the work that I do is in reframing the problem itself, we can reframe the way we sell the concept internally. We can reframe the way that we get the organization to embrace each of these different reframes become extremely important in the end game of being able to make innovation a reality. So I'm, I'm always looking at it from a, 
a very broad perspective, the people, the process, the technology, uh, the measures, the strategy, all these different components, we have to address all of them in order for any kind of innovation to be successful. And each of those can be a part of a reframe. So it's to me, it's a process that can be scaled in a number of different ways. You're right. I've been thinking about the psychology of reframing and change, and you've just added five other factors there that are critical to the success. Well, it's a, it, it does take a lot. Of, and that's why I think a lot of these initiatives have failed in the past is people have equated create, for example, just talking about innovation, they've equated creativity with innovation, and they're not the same thing. They seem mm-hmm. to think that if we get people, you know, developing wacky ideas and people thinking outside the box and people coming up with kooky suggestions, that that's going to move an organization. And it's not. It's not. We don't need more ideas. We need better problems to more important or better solutions to more important problems. And then we have to have the means to actually bring that forward inside the organization. It's not a quantity of ideas. It's a quality of solutions that actually get implemented. And I think people think too narrowly about innovation or any type of change program in order for it to be successful. I just finished um, editing a book, uh, The Chief Executive Team, written by a industrial psychologist, organizational psychologist, Ricardo Vargas. And he talked about all of the, the competing demands on an executive team and their ambitions because many of them are jockeying for the position of the CEO and how an executive team can be very dysfunctional unless they're willing to look at the people, the processes, all of those components that you just listed. It's not just making one change, it's looking at the whole organic organization with all of its variables to be able to become able to move from a dysfunctional to a functional team. And with a functional executive team, you then have a much more functional organization. Right, right. I mean, it's, you know, we, we tend to think about things in terms of uh, boxes in many cases, people, process, technology, uh, but it's really the intersection, it's the connection of all those different pieces that really make the difference. If you deal with things in isolation and don't deal with the interrelationship between them, then you don't get the results. You might optimize one part of the business while sub-optimizing another part of the business. And you need to really address all the pieces together, which is, which is why it's so complicated. And it's easy to say these types of things, but it's another thing to actually make them a reality because there are so many ramifications of spending too much time in one place and not another place. And there's also the lack of objectivity that exists within the organization, bound by tradition, bound by fiefdoms, bound by ambition, when you come in as an outside consultant coach to work with that organization, you can see things that I believe they are blind to, or at least some members of the association or organization are blind to. I think that's the big value of outside perspectives in general, is it's hard for us to look at ourselves objectively. Uh, the other thing which I do is, you know, if I go into a company and let's say it's a financial services organization and they'll ask me, okay, so what other financial services organizations did you work with? Because we want somebody who's an expert in financial services. And I said, look, the fact that, yes, I've worked with dozens of financial services organizations, but 
that's not why you're hiring me. If you want a financial services expert, bring in a financial services expert. But if you want to bring the best thinking from healthcare, retail, uh, whatever it might be, bring them together into new ways. It's again, those connections, connections across industry boundaries, connections across functional boundaries. That's where the real magic starts to happen. And so that to me is what gets very exciting is to mm-hmm. you know, bring all those different perspectives together uh, into an organization. And that's why I think an outside perspective can be helpful is I've worked with pretty much every single industry you could possibly imagine. And I bring the best thinking from each of those industries to the industry I'm working with. Well, how can our listener or our viewer find out more about you and your services and your book or books? Uh, the, the, I mean, you can go to my website, which is steveshapiro.com. Uh, if you want to learn about Invisible Solutions, which is my latest book, you can go to invisiblesolutionsbook.com. Uh, and that's probably the best place to start all those. You'll find my books and speeches and other materials. Everything's right there. Excellent. Well, if you are interested in the topic of innovation, I encourage you to check out Steve Shapiro's most recent book. If you are a company looking for a consultant or assistance, you can find his information at the website that he just defined for you. Thank you, Stephen, for being part of the show and sharing your thoughts and experiences with us. It was my pleasure, Pat. Thanks for having me. And thank you to you who's been listening to this program or watching it on our YouTube channel. Be sure to tell a couple of other people about Writing to Get Business. Our podcast focuses in on using a book as a business tool, not just focused on the royalties, but on the opportunities and the doors that open to you when you become an author. This is Writing to Get Business, and I'm Pat Iyer. I have just finished speaking with Donna Blevins, who is known as Big Girl Poker on many of her platforms. She is an individual who has quite an amazing story to share. Donna, what are some of the key points that we covered in your podcast? Everything from being six feet, five inches tall and going from modeling to real estate to publishing to poker and now to being a mind shift coach. I think one of the things that people will want to know is how poker saved my life. That's my tease. Be sure to come back and Watch Donna Blevins' podcast. If you are watching a series of podcasts, it should be the one right below this one. And you may be on YouTube and you'll see this little video linked to the full interview. Be sure to capture that opportunity to get to know Donna and to take advantage of the lessons and the teachings that she shares in this program. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for writers at writingtogetbusiness.com. That is W-R-I-T-I-N-G-T-O-G-E-T-B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S dot com. Coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs work with Pat so they can get more business by writing and sharing their expertise. Check out Pat's resources on writingtogetbusiness.com. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.